good. So last week, we learned from the life of Abraham that faith means trusting all that God promises to be to us in Christ Jesus. And so because you're trusting Jesus Christ, what that means is that all of God's promises in the Bible are true for you. God will keep every one of them. He will fulfill every single one of them in your life. So what this means is, church, we need to grow in learning God's promises and in trusting God's promises from the Bible, learning them from the Bible and trusting them. But as soon as we start to do that, we'll start to bump into some questions. For example, Jeremiah 29, 11, in that verse, God promises that the plans he has for us are plans for our well-being. Well, what does that mean? What does that promise mean if God allows Job to lose all of his wealth and all of his children and his health? What does Jeremiah 29, 11 mean? Another example, John 10, verse 10, Jesus promises to give us life and that abundantly. Beautiful promise. But what does that mean when Jesus allows Paul and Silas, who are serving him, to be beaten and thrown in prison? What does it mean that God promises life and that abundantly? If we're going to be able to live by faith in God's promises, we need to understand these promises. And so this morning, what I want to do is show you a passage of Scripture which I think answers those questions. A passage of Scripture which I believe will help us to understand all of God's promises. So let's turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And I want to start by having us ask, what does Romans 8, 28 promise. What does this verse promise? It's astonishing. Let's read it. Romans 8, 28. Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So this promise applies to all those of us who are loving God and who are called according to his purpose, which from the rest of the book of Romans means those who are trusting Jesus Christ. Because you are trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and as your all-satisfying treasure, this promise is for you. So God promises that his purpose for everything in your life, everything, is to bring you great good. Now, That promise makes sense when everything's going well, right? We can understand that. We get it. But it also applies when things are not going so well. Let me give you some examples. When you get a flat tire, yes, maybe Satan was involved in it. Remember, God's sovereign over Satan. So when you get a flat tire, God's purpose for that is to bring you great good. Or if you lose your job, as hard as that would be. God's purpose for that is to bring you great good. That's what he's promised here. Or if your doctor has bad news for you, God's purpose for that is to bring you great good. 
God promises, Romans 8, 28, that his purpose for everything that he brings into your life is to bring you great good. Now, that does not mean that our lives are going to be free from weeping or grieving or sorrow. Not at all. We will grieve. We should grieve. But our tears and our sorrow are never hopeless. They're always built on the rock-solid foundation that God has a purpose for this, and his purpose is to bring me great good. And that strengthens us and comforts us even with the, the tears and the grieving. So we're asking this question, what does Romans 8.28 promise? And the answer is that for those who trust Jesus, God's purpose in everything is to bring you great good. But now that raises a second question, doesn't it? What is the great good? So we want to know, what is this good that God promises? And, and to answer that question, we shouldn't just close our eyes and think, well, what do I think is good? I think this would be good or that would be good. We want to see what Paul meant by this great good. That's always God's purpose for us. And we can see what that good is by looking at verses 29 and 30. That's why Paul wrote these next two verses, was to help us understand what this good is. Start with verse 28 so we get the whole flow of thought. Let's read verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So that means that Jesus will have the place of highest, highest glory, highest sovereignty, highest honor. And, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, notice that word for at the beginning of verse 29. That shows that these next two verses, verses 29 and 30, are explaining why we can know that everything that God brings into our lives are going to be bringing us great good. And the reason is because of what God's purpose is for everyone he saves. These verses describe God's purpose of salvation, and there's six words that describe God's process of salvation. Let's go through them one at a time, so you'll, you'll see this flow of thought. First of all, we are foreknown. Okay? In eternity past, God, even though he knew full well how we would sin and rebel against him, when there was nothing in us worthy, deserving of any kind of goodness, God chose to set his compassion and his love and his affection upon you. That's what foreknown means in this context. And everybody who is foreknown is also predestined. So not only did God set his affection and his love and his compassion on you, he also chose to save you and change your heart and give you faith, which will result in you being, next word, conformed, conformed into the image of his Son, what this means is that you will be an image of Jesus, shining forth with the glory of Jesus, conformed into the image of his Son. Now, to bring this about, you were, next word, called. So at some point then in your life, he called you to salvation. 
This is a call that changed your heart. It gave you faith. It caused you to want to come to Jesus Christ. That's why you came. And going on, everyone who is called is also justified. This is glorious news. Because of your trust in Jesus, all of your sin, past, present, and future, it was all put upon Jesus on the cross and punished in Jesus on the cross. And Jesus' perfect righteousness, his perfect sinlessness, all of that was given to you to cover your remaining sin. So you are justified. And, last word, everyone who is justified is also glorified. We will shine with Jesus' glory now and forever, more and more and more. Now, Six words. Notice that two of those, as I described them, are still in process. Four of them have been completed. Two of them are still in process. Specifically, that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus' Son, so we're shining with more and more of his glory. And second, that we will be glorified. And these two items are the good, the great good, that God is pursuing in everything that he's bringing into our lives. Those two phrases describe the great good that God is bringing to us. The great good is that God is going to conform us into the image of his Son and is going to glorify us in Jesus' glory. That's the great good. Now that raises a third question, then. What is so good about that? What is so good about being conformed to, the image, to Jesus' image and being glorified. And to answer that, I looked for some other verses to see if I could find verses that might elaborate on this a bit more. Verses that use the kind of same language, talking about the same concepts, but kind of fill out the picture a little bit. And I found a very helpful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. See if this helps you as it has helped me. Let's read it. Notice how similar the language is. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Paul says, and we all, with unveiled face, so the veil of our unbelief is lifted away by God's power, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. See the same language? We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now notice, same language as Romans chapter 8. Instead of being conformed or transformed, same idea, into the same image, glorified, shining with glory, same idea. Now notice that in 2 Corinthians 3.18, though, we see something that we didn't see back in Romans 8, which I think is absolutely crucial. This process starts with us beholding the glory of the Lord. Did you catch that? We all, with unveiled face. So before we were saved, our faces were veiled by our sin and our unbelief. We did not want to see the glory of Jesus. You could open up a Bible, read about Jesus, okay, whatever, what's in the refrigerator. just didn't grab your heart. Nothing, nothing was of any interest there to you. But when God saves you, he lifts the veil, and you see the glory of Jesus. You felt the glory of Jesus. You loved the glory of Jesus. That's what happens when God saves us. This all starts with beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, I want to give you an illustration just to give you a feel of what what this might involve. In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards was a missionary to the Native American Indians. 
And he kept a journal. And here's what he wrote in his journal about a time when he powerfully beheld the glory of Jesus. Listen to what he says. Once, as I was on a walk to pray and meditate on Scripture, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God. He wasn't seeing this with his physical eyes. It was just the eyes of his heart. He was sensing this, the, the glory of the Son of God as mediator, that is reconciler, go-between, between God and man, and his, Jesus, wonderful, great, sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle lowliness in becoming a man. This grace was both calm and sweet and great above the heavens. The person of Christ was so glorious that he swallowed up all my thoughts. This continued as near as I can judge for about an hour, which kept me weeping aloud. I wanted to humble myself in the dust and be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust him, to serve and follow him. Now, Notice that he says this was an extraordinary experience, okay? So it's not what he experienced every day, nowhere close. This was an unusual experience. But I want to have you see it and hear it so that you'll get, get a sense. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. Because talking about beholding the glory of the Lord can just be words so often. This is the kind of thing we're talking about. This is an extraordinary experience, but this is the, the kind of thing. When we open up God's Word and pray, and study, and read. And when we worship the Lord Jesus, God will give us times when we see the glory of Jesus Christ. He'll give us a heart revelation of Christ's beauty, and majesty, and love. And when God does this, we will be filled with joy, filled to overflowing with joy, because Jesus and his glory is the greatest joy in the universe. That's what we're talking about here, beholding the glory of the Lord. So let's read 2 Corinthians 3.18 again with that in mind so that this will help you understand what's being talked about here. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I think there's four parts to this in this verse. Starts with beholding Jesus' glory, which then second fills us with joy, which isn't mentioned in the passage, but it's clear from many other passages, like 1 Peter 1.8, for example. So first, we behold Jesus' glory. Then second, we are filled with joy, and that joy in, in Jesus transforms us. Remember Jonathan Edwards? He wanted to humble himself in the dust. He wanted to serve and follow him. We're transformed into the image of Jesus. So we're shining more and more with his glory. In fact, that's the fourth part, shining with Jesus' glory. So beholding Jesus' glory, rejoicing, secondly, in Jesus' glory. Third, being transformed by Jesus' glory. And then fourth, shining with Jesus' glory. That's this whole process being talked about here in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Now let me try to make this tangible. So Saturday morning, you walk in the doors here, and maybe you're just really feeling far from God when you come in. So you are 
be worried about losing your job because of something that happened at your work this last week. You're worried. Not only are you worried, but you're, you're bitter because somebody at the workplace slandered you to the managers. So you're bitter, revengeful, angry at them. So you're worried, you're feeling bitter, and you're feeling guilty because you know you shouldn't be worried and bitter and vengeful. Okay, so you, welcome to worship. Okay, here you are. But isn't this kind of like what happens to all of us most of the time when we walk in? It's like, oh God, meet me. Come and meet me. But then you start to worship Jesus Christ. Okay, Father, help me. Lift the veil. Change my heart. Show me your glory. Break in. Touch my life. And you set your heart on the words that we're singing, just like we did this morning. You set your heart on those truths about Jesus Christ. And as you sing, God comes and those words start to stir your heart, right? Oh, Jesus Christ, you love me. You have forgiven me. You will change my heart. I can come to you just as I am and say, help me, and you will help me. You see his mercy. You see his compassion. You see his death on the cross and his resurrection. You see his authority. You see his, his power. You are beholding Jesus' glory. That's what's happening, okay? And as you behold Jesus' glory, you are rejoicing in Jesus' glory. You see his love for you, his power over your work situation. You are so just filled with the greatest joy in the universe, which is the joy of beholding Jesus' glory. Every believer has tasted that, and you're tasting at that moment. It doesn't stop there, though. So you got beholding Jesus' glory and rejoicing in Jesus' glory. But third, you are now being transformed into the image of Jesus' glory. As you see and feel his love, his power, his mercy, your heart is changed. That worry about your work situation, you now see that all authority has been given to him in heaven on earth. And he loved you so much that he died on the cross for you. He is in control of what happens at your workplace. You can trust him. Fear shrinks, peace grows, and the sheer mercy of being forgiven by Jesus, having all your sins paid for by him on the cross, that melts that resentment and that bitterness, and you start to care about this person and want to forgive this person who slandered you, so the worry is gone or is going, and the bitterness is shrinking, and the guilt that you felt has lifted because there's this fresh assurance that you are saved. You're being transformed inside, but it doesn't just transform you inside. As you behold Jesus' glory and rejoice in Jesus' glory and are transformed by Jesus' glory, you start to shine with Jesus' glory. Think about this. What would your face look like, or what was it looking like when you walked in full of worry and bitterness and guilt? What would your face look like? Okay, it wouldn't be pretty, right? I don't know, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be bad. But now, peace is there. And forgiveness is there. And assurance of salvation is there. And that will be shining forth from you. Somebody from across the room watching you, worshiping the Lord Jesus, will see the glory of Jesus shining from your face. You will be glorified as his glory shines forth from you. That's what it means to be conformed to Jesus' image, the image of his glory, and to be glorified. It means beholding his glory, 
rejoicing in his glory, being transformed by his glory, and shining with his glory. That's what it means. And that is the greatest good in the universe because there's no greater joy than Jesus' glory. Now, with that in mind, let's look back at Romans 8, 28 to 30. So we just took a little detour to 2 Corinthians 3 to get the bigger picture. Now, back to Romans 8, 28 to 30. Read verse 28 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And how can we know that God's purpose is good for all of us? It's because it's explained in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to have what happen to them? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the good that God promises us is being conformed to the image of Jesus, shining with his glory, and then being glorified. Another way of saying the same thing. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 showed us that being conformed to Jesus' image and being glorified means beholding, delighting in, being transformed by, and shining with the glory of Jesus. And this is the greatest good because there's no greater good, no greater joy than Jesus' glory. Okay, so, little conclusion here. God promises that his purpose for everything that he brings into your life is to bring you the greatest good of beholding more of Jesus' glory, rejoicing more in Jesus' glory, being more transformed by Jesus' glory, and shining more with Jesus' glory. Everything in your life, God is going to bring, is, is targeted, God will use it to bring about that greatest of all goods, now and forever. Okay. Now, remember, at the very beginning of the message, I said that these verses in Romans help us understand all of God's promises. So let's raise that as our next question. How does this help us understand all of God's promises? It works like this. Romans 8.28 explains God's purpose for everything he brings into your life. And everything he does for us, everything he brings into our life is, is a description of what he's promised to do. If Romans 8.28 describes God's purpose in everything he does for us, and God's promises describe everything he does for us, then that means that Romans 8.28 explains all of what God promises to us. Let me try to illustrate this, see if this works. Let's say you're going to hire a contractor to build a house for you, to build yourself a house. So the contractor sits down with you, and he's, he has a document he wants to show you. At the top of this document, he, he wrote, there's a statement written, my purpose in everything I do is to build you a house. That's straightforward. Sounds good. That's what you want. You want to have a house built? My purpose in everything I do for you is to build you a house. So that summarizes his purpose in, in everything he's going to do. Sounds like Romans 8.28, right? That's his purpose for everything he's going to do. Then underneath that statement, he lists all these specific promises of what that's going to look like, okay? All these promises. So, and, and all these specific promises are going to be explained by that overall statement because everything he's going to do is to build you a house. So when you read that he's promising to, to draw you plans, you know, well, those are plans for my house. It's a good thing. Or when you read that he's promising to, to dig a foundation, 
Okay, well, that's, that's got to be the foundation for my house. Awesome. I want that house. When he promises to put in wiring or hire a subcontractor for this or get plumbing put in. Okay, you know, these are all promises that explain how he's building you a house because he's already told you everything he's doing is going to be done to build you this house. And that's exactly how Romans 8.28 works. In Romans 8.28-30, through 30, God tells us that everything he does is to give us even more joy in Jesus' glory. The greatest joy of the universe. Everything God does is to help us have more beholding of Jesus' glory, rejoicing in Jesus' glory, being transformed by Jesus' glory, and shining with Jesus' glory. Everything God does, he's made it very clear, is to bring you more of Jesus' glory. And that helps us understand the specific promises that God gives to us. For example, when he promises to guide us, Okay, we know what that means. He's going to guide us in exactly the direction that will bring us more joy in Jesus' glory. I understand that promise. When he promises to provide for us, does that mean we're all going to become millionaires? No. It means that God will give us exactly the money that we need, whether that's lots or whether that's little, but he'll give us exactly the money that we need which will bring us the most joy in Jesus' glory. He's already explained all of that. When God promises to protect us, does that mean we're never going to face any trials or any suffering? No, it does not mean that. It means he will protect us from whatever would shrink our joy in Jesus' glory, take away from our joy in Jesus' glory. When he promises to give us every good thing, does it mean we're like, that's a good thing, that's a good thing? No. What it means is that he will give us whatever will give us the greatest joy in the greatest joy in the universe, Jesus' glory. Now, remember at the beginning, I brought up two examples. Jeremiah 29, 11 was one of them, right? Where God promises that he has plans for our well-being. And I want you to see how this helps us understand that, that promise. We can now see how God did that for Job. That's what God did for Job. Yes, Job lost his wealth and his children and his health, but he received the greatest joy in the universe, seeing God's glory more, rejoicing in God's glory more, transformed by God's glory more, and shining with God's glory more. Jeremiah 29, 11. That's what that verse means. I also mentioned John 10, 10. Jesus promises to give us life and that abundantly. And now we can see how that's exactly what Jesus did for Paul and Silas. Remember I said earlier, they were beaten and thrown in prison. The story does not end there. Later that night, we see them. Luke gives us a glimpse into what's happening in that prison cell. They are singing and praising and worshiping Jesus Christ. Why? Because through this experience, they are seeing more of Jesus' glory and rejoicing more in his glory, and being transformed by and shining with more of Jesus' glory. So here's my encouragement. Whenever you find yourself struggling to understand, here's this promise, here's what I'm experiencing, how do they fit together, look back at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God's purpose in everything that he does, this is the big contractor statement, everything I do is to build you a house, everything God does is to give us greater joy in Jesus' glory. And that is the 
best possible gift God could give to us. Because Jesus' glory is your greatest joy. That's how this works. And I thought at this point, I want to have one last question. There's one last question. I just want to make sure we, we address straight, straight on. And that is, okay, can trials really give us more of Jesus' glory? Can trials really give us a greater experience of God's glory? You say that Job experienced that. You said Paul and Silas experienced that. Does that really happen? Did that happen for me? Can that happen for you? The answer is yes. That's what Romans 8.28 promises. It's God's purpose in everything that he does for his people. And I want to tell you how Hudson Taylor experienced this. I thought, what's the best way to answer this? Let me just give you an example from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, one of my heroes, one of the first missionaries to inland China. And after he arrived in China and had been ministering um, a few years in, his wife of 12 years, had been married for 12 years, she died, tragically. And he wrote a letter to a friend describing what God was doing in his heart. So listen to this. Here's what he wrote to his friend. It's amazing. Only Jesus knows what her absence is to me. Twelve and a half years of such unbroken spiritual fellowship, united labor, mutual satisfaction, and love fall to the lot of very few. But never does he, Jesus, leave me. Constantly does he cheer me with his love. He who once wept at the grave of Lazarus often now weeps in and with me. Often I find myself wondering whether it is possible for her who is taken to have more joy in his presence than he has given me. Let me read that again. That's amazing. Often I find myself wondering whether it is possible for her who is taken to have more joy in his presence than he has given me. At times he, Jesus, does allow me to feel all that I have lost, just the depth of grief and sorrow here. And then, he who will soon come and wipe away every tear comes and takes all bitterness from them, from my tears, and fills my heart with deep, true, unutterable gladness. Can trials give us a greater experience of Christ's glory? Paul and Silas would say yes. Job would say yes. Hudson Taylor would say yes. And most important, Romans 8, 28-30 says yes. Absolutely. So here's my encouragement to you. Understand that God is doing everything in your life to increase your joy in Jesus' glory. That's the big statement summarizing everything God does for you, including all of his promises. And so then understand, that's the point of every promise. That's what every promise is really promising. Here's how God is going to bring you more joy in Jesus' glory. And then let God's promises focus you there. Let, it, let them focus you all the more on beholding 
Jesus' glory and rejoicing in Jesus' glory and being transformed by Jesus' glory and then shining to the world around you with Jesus' glory. Let's stand. I want to pray for us. We praise you, God, that you are in sovereign control of everything in our lives. Nothing is random or without your purpose. And we praise you that in your love and mercy because of Jesus, your purpose for those who trust Christ is that everything is going to bring us more of the greatest joy in the universe, beholding Jesus' glory. I pray that you'd strengthen us in our understanding of your promises, that this week as we learn more of your promises and pray over your promises and trust your promises, that we would see how every part of our lives is being worked by you to bring us that greatest of all joys, the joy of loving your son, beholding your son, worshiping your son. Do that, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.